Well, as we join with our friends worshiping in the Community Life Center, I want to invite everybody to once again take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. We have been steadily ever since the first of the year working our way through Luke's Gospel, and today, one week out from Easter, we are approaching the climax. And on this Palm Sunday, when we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, we read that story as Luke tells it for us in the 19th chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 28. So I invite you to follow along. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, of all the days in the Christian year, this day, Palm Sunday, is the most confusing for me because I'm never quite sure what I am supposed to feel on this day. There are moments in the Christian year when the emotions are clear and obvious. Take Christmas, for example. The Word puts on flesh and comes to make His dwelling among us. That is an occasion for full-on celebration. So we gather and sing, Joy to the Lord! The joy to the world! The Lord has come! Let earth receive her King! No more let sin and sorrow bear! Or take next Sunday as an example. Next Sunday, of course, is Easter Sunday. Next Sunday, we will gather to hear the incredible announcement that the grave is empty. 
that against all odds, Jesus is alive, that death has been defeated. A lot of you will go out this week and buy a new outfit so you can put it on next Sunday. We can come down and sing our resurrection songs and then go home and celebrate with friends and family. And while we may not always know what to say about these kinds of mysteries, we know clearly what we are supposed to feel about them. Those are days that call for joy and gratitude and praise and gladness. But today is different. Today there is a mix of emotions, and I'm never quite sure which one I'm supposed to focus on. The day begins with a clear air of celebration and gladness because at long last Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. We've known all along that this is where he was headed. Ever since we read back in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. He's been plodding along methodically with every story that we've read moving towards this destination. He's about to reach his goal. Now if we were to back up a few verses earlier in Luke chapter 19, we would discover that this final leg of this journey began in the village of Jericho. Jericho is located uh, within sight of the northern shore of the Dead Sea, which means it's located at the lowest spot on the face of the earth, roughly 2,400 feet below sea level. And to get from Jericho to Jerusalem, you turn west and you begin to climb. Now, it's only about 15 miles as the crow flies, but in the span of that 15 miles, you go from 2,400 feet below sea level to 2,400 feet above sea level. That's an average climb of 320 feet per mile. I have made that journey twice, walking or following at least the same path that Jesus would have followed. Now, full confession, I did it from the comfort of an air-conditioned tour bus. But even then, you can feel the strain of that climb, the gravity pulling you back as you lean forward. And there comes a moment when you pass out of the dry, barren, desert landscape that surrounds the Dead Sea and you enter into a green, lush landscape that surrounds the villages in the area around Jerusalem. And then at long last you reach the top of the Mount of Olives located just to the east of Jerusalem and they are rising up in front of you on one hillside over is the holy city glistening in what I am sure by then is the late afternoon sun. And as you take in that scene, it's not hard to imagine what Jesus and the other disciples who had made that journey with him must have been feeling. It's one of those lump-in-the-throat kind of moments that sort of sears itself into your brain and stays with you forever. And of course, this wasn't just any trip to Jerusalem that Jesus was making. He and his disciples were going there to celebrate the Passover, which is the single most important celebration in Jewish life. Passover recalled that moment centuries earlier when, when God had acted mightily to free his people from slavery in Egypt. That had been the singular event in their history, and there was no grander place to celebrate it than in Jerusalem, the capital city. 
Think Washington, D.C. on Independence Day and you can begin to understand the emotions that are in play here. And as our story begins this morning, Jesus leans into the celebration of that moment. He is fully aware of everything that his arrival in Jerusalem means. In fact, he understands it better than anyone. That's why we've got this strange sequence of events that we read about. As best we can tell, Jesus so far has walked all the way to Jerusalem, not just from Jericho, but all the way from the Sea of Galilee, some 60 miles to the north. And now Jerusalem is just one short walk down one steep hillside and up another, but Jesus chooses not to complete his journey on foot. Instead, he sends a couple of disciples ahead to secure a, a donkey that he can ride into the holy city. That decision was not an act of impulse on his part. Jesus is intentionally highlighting the significance and the excitement of this moment. Because you see, mixed in with the Passover remembrances of the past, there was also a charged anticipation of the future. The Jewish people were awaiting the coming of their Messiah. Israel by now had been living under Roman occupation for close to a century. They were looking forward to that day when God would send His anointed one to, they were sure, drive out the Romans and set them free again. And tucked away, back in the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah, there's a verse that speaks about the moment when that would happen. Zechariah 9, verse 9 declares, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You can rest assured Jesus knew that verse more importantly, he knew the meaning of that verse for this moment. And by climbing on the back of that donkey and riding into Jerusalem, Jesus is announcing without saying a word that he is here to fulfill that prophecy, that he is here to act out Israel's most passionate hope and their most favorite promise. Because with his coming into Jerusalem, God is at long last arriving as the true king to reign over his people. And that's why Jesus makes no effort to silence the crowds around him. There were moments earlier in his ministry when Jesus tried to dampen the enthusiasm that grew up around him because he knew how likely it was that people would misinterpret what that meant and who he was. But here in this moment, he not only welcomes their excitement, he seems to encourage it, to, to nurture it, to invite it. When one critic tells him to ask the disciples and the crowds to be quiet, Jesus declares if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So let there be no mistake about it. This is a moment of celebration. This is a moment of joy and praise and gladness because the true king is coming to reign over his people. He is coming to claim the throne that rightfully belongs to him. And every time, by the way, every time God's people gather for worship, we are reenacting that. The very purpose of worship is to once again name that Jesus Christ alone is King. God has come to reign over His people. 
If only the story could end there. But it doesn't. Because you may have noticed in the very next verse, the scene shifts and the tone changes and the mood darkens. While all those shouts of praise are erupting around him, Jesus looks at the holy city out in front of him and he weeps. He doesn't just get teary-eyed. He weeps. In a moment, he goes from tremendous joy to immense sorrow because Jesus knows what lies ahead of him. He knows that for him, this Passover will be marked by suffering and ultimately by death. He knows that a few short days from now, the crowds will turn on him. The disciples will abandon him. The authorities will arrest him. And his enemies will hang him on a cross. And by Friday afternoon, the one who was riding on Sunday into Jerusalem, being hailed as the king, he will hang from a cross until he is dead. And that's only the beginning of his sorrow. The real source of his grief is not over what he knows will happen to him. No, he weeps primarily because of the ones who will do it to him. He weeps because he knows the people he comes to save, they will not accept his offer. Now to be sure, Jesus doesn't want to endure the physical suffering that's ahead of him. We know that from the prayer that he utters in the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night, saying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But the real suffering he will endure is not the physical pain. It's the rejection. It's knowing that the people he loves so dearly, that they will abandon him, that they will reject him, that they will not respond to his love. Instead, the people will continue to choose the way of destruction. They will cast aside the true king and follow after false ones. So maybe you can see why for me this day is a bit confusing. Are we supposed to celebrate and sing praises? Or are we supposed to weep and agonize? Are we supposed to feel the joy? Or should we more appropriately taste the dread? Maybe the best we can do is to say yes to both. Maybe one of the reasons this day is so important to us is because it holds a mirror up in front of us, forcing us to recognize how life truly is. Life always comes to us as a mixed blessing. The great philosopher Charlie Brown once said, 
the secret of happiness is having three things to look forward to and nothing to dread. If only it were so. But life never comes to us that way, does it? Life is always to us a mix of both joy and sorrow. If we look hard enough, we can always find something to celebrate. Every day is filled with some sort of gift or some sort of gesture of goodness, even if it is nothing more than the gift of that day. The very fact that the sun came up again this morning is itself a gift that is worth celebrating. And yet at the same time, try as we may to ignore it, there was always something lurking in the shadows. Always something there bringing fear and worry and anxiety and maybe even sorrow into our lives. How do we live at the intersection of those things? Years ago, in my first ministry as a pastor, I celebrated with a family as they welcomed their first grandchild into the world. Less than a week later, I gathered with that same family in our sanctuary to preach the funeral of the grandfather who would never hear that sweet child speak his first words or see him take his first step. And I remember how strange it was stumbling for words to share with them that day. And that experience has stayed with me over the years because it is a living picture of the way life works. Was this family supposed to celebrate or, or were they supposed to grieve? And the answer, I think, is yes. Life has always lived under some kind of shadow or another. That's not being pessimistic. It's just acknowledging the way the world works. Hardly ever do we get to live out all of the joys without some mix of sorrow thrown in. The only reason that fact does not drive us to despair, however, is because of this story. Like we said, Jesus knows full well what is ahead of him. None of the events of the upcoming week are going to catch him by surprise or catch him off guard. On, on multiple occasions by now, Jesus has already warned his disciples that he is going to be killed. None of them understood what that meant when he said it to them, but Jesus certainly did. In fact, it's the reason he came. And yet knowing that, Jesus climbs onto the back of that donkey and he rides into Jerusalem anyway. Intentionally, deliberately, with purpose, Jesus rode into the storm that was swirling on the horizon. Again, allow the, emo the emotions of the moment to, to catch up with you. There you are. You can see the conflict brewing out in front of you. You know what's ahead of you. How excited are you about moving forward? How tempted are you to turn around and go back in the other direction? 
It's not hard to imagine that at least at some point during this sequence of events, Jesus would have been aware of the possibility of simply going back to Galilee. The Jerusalem that was in front of him was a boiling cauldron of conflict and tension. The Roman authorities and the Jewish leadership are locked with one another in a standoff over who's really in control. And soon, all of that conflict is going to boil over on him. Meanwhile, the region of Galilee from which he has come, well, it's quiet. It's far out of the reach of the center of power. It's relatively stable and, and peaceful. Jesus could have simply gone back to Galilee and, and lived out His days there and, and carried on His ministry of preaching and healing and He probably could have done it without a lot of interference and without too much worry. So, so why not just go back there and, and live out your days in quietness and stability? But He doesn't. Instead, he marches ahead, fully aware of the conflict and the evil and the darkness that awaits him. He goes forward to fulfill the reason he came. Now ask yourself, what would possibly motivate him to do such a thing? The answer is really quite simple. Jesus is willing to trust what his father is doing. He knows that his father in heaven is not sending him to suffer for no reason. He knows that out of this conflict and this chaos, God is working to bring about something beautiful and amazing. Through Jesus' suffering, God is at work to bring about nothing less than the very salvation of the world. Now, I already mentioned on several occasions, Jesus told the disciples he would be killed. But each time he said that to them, he also said that three days later he would be raised back to life. Jesus could look into that storm that was brewing out ahead of him and he could already see what was on the other side of the clouds. He knew that out of the hatred he would face, God would bring love. He knew that out of the suffering he would face, God would bring beauty. He knew that out of the pain he would face, God would bring hope. And ultimately he knew that out of the death he would endure... God would bring life. It was gray and gloomy and wet as we taxied toward the runway. Dark clouds kind of stretched out as far as you could see in any direction. I wasn't too particularly excited about flying into that mess. The pilot came over the intercom in that classic cool casual voice that they train airline pilots to have and he said, don't worry, folks. In a few minutes, we're going to punch through all these clouds. The plane lifted off, rain sweeping past the windows. We climbed up into that cloud bank a few minutes later, and everything went dark. And then all of a sudden, we were above it. 
the sun shone clear, and the sky was so bright and blue in every direction that you had to squint when you looked at it. That's why Jesus could march into the city that day. He knew the only way to bring salvation to the world was to march into the teeth of that brewing storm because somebody had to pay the penalty for our sin. So he would go into Jerusalem and he would take upon himself the full weight of my sin and your sin and the sin of the entire world so that it could be crucified with him. Then, and only then, would he emerge from that tomb three days later to bring about a gloriously new kind of life. And so the question for us today is whether we will fall into line behind Jesus as he rides that donkey towards that cross. Because I'm guessing that almost all of us here today, if we look far enough and with clear enough eyes, we can see some kind of storm brewing on our horizon. And we've got to decide whether we're going to move towards it with purpose and intentionality or whether we're going to retreat and go back in the other direction. You've just been given a bad diagnosis. Will you move forward and continue to pour yourself into the people in your life? Or will you retreat in anger and bitterness? The marriage is beginning to break apart after years of neglect and simmering conflict. Will you confront your own selfish contribution to that brokenness and do the hard work of reconciliation? Or will you ignore the problem and keep pretending like everything is fine until it is too late? A loved one has died, leaving you to wrestle with your loneliness. Will you continue to live as though your life still has purpose? Or will you retreat into yourself and give up any chance of meaningful existence? The consequences of some past mistake have finally caught up with you. Will you own the responsibility of your own behaviors and allow God to begin something new in you? Or will you continue to blame everybody else and refuse to confront the truth about your own life? In some way, in some shape, in some form, there's a storm brewing for all of us. And we've got to ask whether we will move into that darkness with purpose, with hope. Will we go forward trusting that Jesus can bring order even out of our chaos? And meaning even out of our suffering. And life out of our own death. Or will we retreat and go back to Galilee? Jesus made his choice. Even though it would cost him everything, Jesus said yes to what God was calling him to do. 
The path he would walk would carry him from the high celebration of Palm Sunday down into the valley of despair and then back up into the unimagined joy of Easter. And that choice, that willingness on his part to move forward on our behalf, it has brought salvation to the world. The question is, will we go forward with him? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks that, that in spite of what it would cost you, you moved ahead into the darkness of our sin. And in the end, because of your faithfulness, you brought hope out of despair and life out of death. Cause us, O oh God, to, to move forward in that same spirit of hope. Give us honest eyes to see life the way it truly is. And yet in so doing, to not be given to despair and anguish, but rather to live out of a spirit of trust in your goodness and in your power. Thank you that you move forward with us. Help us to move forward with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In some ways, Palm Sunday is a story about something that happened a long time ago, but in another very important way, it's a story of something that continues to happen right now, because Jesus continues to move forward through our lives, through our struggles, through our darkness. Again, the question is whether we'll go with Him. If you were here this morning and you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ and acknowledged Him as Lord, then, then when we sing in just a moment, I would invite you to come forward and we'll pray together as you begin that journey of trust and hope. If there's some other response you need to make publicly, whether it's to, to seek membership in the church or whether it's just to seek prayer and, and, and counsel in some matter you're struggling with, whatever it is, if there's something you need to share, I'll be here. But the call to all of us is to ask, will we follow? Let's stand and worship Him together.